All right, good to be here with you guys. I missed last week, so I didn't even know what this looked like, how many people were here and all those things. So it's kind of exciting to have a lot of you in here as we get to jump in. We are starting into the very first few verses of the book of Philippians today. So you can either open your Bible or you can open your little scripture journal or the little handout there that's in front of you actually has the text on it with room for you to kind of scribble around on there and and make notes and ask questions and all of those things. So you've got options today for how you want to do that. Uh, Jumping into the very beginning, the introduction of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, you can tell uh, a lot about a person by reading their mail sometimes, by looking at the things they write, sometimes even in a very short a uh, short little section of words, you can get a pretty good feel for what a person's like and what they're about. Uh, I want to show you real quick, a number of you know my youngest daughter Hadley, but I want to show you a picture of my daughter Hadley here. Okay, this is Hadley. She is eight years old. Uh, she does not always carry a chicken around. That's just the most recent picture that I've had of her, is of her carrying a chicken. Uh, so, but if she does find an animal, that's usually what it looks like. It's her kind of squeezing it in joy and it with a little bit of a terrified look. I don't know if chickens can have terrified looks, but animals tend to have terrified looks sometimes when Hadley is loving them. Uh, but uh, Hadley is our youngest uh, of our three kids. And what I always like to say about Hadley is whatever Hadley is in any given moment, she is 100% that thing. So if she is happy, she is like full to the brim with joy and just overflowing. And if she is being silly, she is bouncing off the walls silly and a distraction in class and all of those things kind of silly. And if she is sad, then she is really, really sad. And if she is angry, then everybody just go run and jump inside your bomb shelter because it's about to get crazy whenever Hadley gets a little bit upset. Whatever she is, she's all those things. She is a little bit of a firecracker. And because of that, uh, she is probably, uh, of our three kids, she is the one that there's most likely to be some kind of explosiveness sometimes when it comes to debates with mom and dad or frustrations. And she can kind of lose it and just go out of control sometimes. Uh, but the other really cool thing about Hadley is that of my three kids, she, she probably has the most naturally, or maybe I say natural, maybe it's, uh, I, I would like to say, spirit-encouraged, uh, spirit spirit-inspired repentance in her. She is quick to feel convicted for wrong things she's done. She is quick to feel sorry, and after she blows up, to come back and apologize and ask for forgiveness. That's something she's done since she was little, and it's, it's always been a really cool thing to see. Well, um, a few months ago, she was in school, and her class, third grade class, was learning about writing letters. And so as one of their little assignments, they had to write a letter to their parents. And so we didn't even know about this. We just one day got in the mail this little envelope with kind of scribbled uh, handwriting all over it, and we opened it up, and we had this letter from Hadley. And uh, I thought this letter just so perfectly encapsulated so much of what Hadley is. I don't know if you can read it all. I'll read it to you here. It says, hi, mom and dad. Thank you for, that's four with an E, for taking care of me. Will you forgive me for the bad stuff I ever did to you? Sincerely, Hadley, which is so sweet. I love that. And then she finishes up with this. P.S. I have no idea what P.S. means. Love you. Uh, and when I, when I 
open that, literally my emotions kind of switched quickly from like an awe to laughing out loud in the middle of my kitchen, uh, which is, like I said, such a great uh, encapsulation of who Hadley is, uh, to be able to see kind of this tender heart and this silliness in the middle. That's a good joke, by the way. For a third grader, that's a good joke. That's, that's a good sense of humor. And, uh, and I, just, I just remember laughing at that and thinking that that was so great. You can sometimes get a really good feel for what a person is like by reading their mail. Um, maybe mail is a bad illustration these days. Maybe it's email or not even that anymore, actually. It's like text threads. By reading their text threads, by reading the things that they write, sometimes just in short little spurts, you can, you can get a pretty good feel for what a person is all about. And this is the case with Paul. When he, you can get a pretty good idea in his first couple paragraphs what he is about and where he's going. Philippians is maybe one of the best illustrations of this. What Paul does in his letters is he actually follows the common letter-writing practices of the day. Uh, The first century had kind of a standard writing format, and he always sticks pretty close to that. It starts with the address sir to the addressee. Uh, I, Paul, write to you, Ryan. And then it goes with a greetings, greetings. And, and then there's generally some sort of thanks or blessings to the gods for this person that they're writing to. I thank the gods for your friendship, Ryan. I thank the gods that you are still safe, um, that I received good word of your, of your health, those kinds of things. And so you would see that. And Paul takes those standard letter-writing practices of his day, but he always alters them just a little bit to give his own theological spin on those things. The first thing Paul always does is he takes the Greek, the Greek word for greetings, karain, and he pretty much every time changes it, karain, to charis, which is grace instead of greetings, because uh, that's what Paul's all about. And so he starts with this, grace to you. Um, and, and then he, he also moves into his prayers, and his prayers always uh, speak about what he's about, but also reveal to you what's about to come up in this letter. If you uh, pay attention to the introductions to Paul's letters, his greetings and his thanks and prayers for the people, you will generally know where this letter's going. You will generally know all the themes that he's going to hit on just by reading those first couple paragraphs. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Here's what I want to do. I'm going to read this out loud. And then I'm going to give you a few minutes, and we'll just play some kind of music in the background. I want to give you a few minutes to read it yourself quietly and and keep your pen or pencil in hand, and I want you to just scribble around the text. I want you uh, to underline things that stick out to you. I want you to write question marks uh, next to things that seem kind of odd to you, questions you have. I want you to circle words that keep coming up over and over again in there. And so uh, I'm going to read this, then I'll give you a few minutes to read it, and then we'll kind of discuss a little bit. So... Here it is, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart. 
And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want to give you, as I said, a minute to be reading through it, looking for these three things. What themes do you see? Repeated words or phrases that are coming up, big ideas, something that seems to be kind of a big idea. Uh, What questions pop up as you read this? What are things that you don't quite understand? What are things that maybe don't fully make sense? And third, uh, just is there anything else that sticks out to you? So kind of randomly, is there anything that's just kind of sticking out to you as you read it? Let me give you a couple of my favorite things to look for when I read, especially Paul's epistles. I love to look for purpose statements. So when you see phrases like, for this reason, or I am asking this for, I love looking at that, um, and I love cause and effect, so that, or in order that. What does Paul deem to be the cause? What does Paul deem to be the effect, and why is that significant? So look around for those three things, uh, themes, questions, and then just anything else that sticks out to you. Take a few minutes, read, and then we'll discuss. Okay, uh, now I want to hear from you guys. Uh, Tell me a little bit of what kind of stuff you notice at your table. Let's start with that first one. What, what themes do you notice as you read through these first 11 verses? What stuff pops up, either because it's repeated or just because it seems like a big idea in this section? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just shout it out if you want. Okay, growing in righteousness, all right. Uh, You see that idea of growth in verse 6, and specifically verse 11, the idea that he wants to see us filled with the fruit of righteousness. Okay, that's good. Growth is something that you'll see in Philippians a fair amount. What else? Partnership. Partnership comes up a couple times. This is a big deal to Paul. Specifically with this church is their partnership with him in ministry. Okay, Ryan started... Yeah, yeah, affection and love. This is probably, I don't know if we talked about it last week, probably most most scholars think this is probably Paul's favorite church. Uh, The way he writes, you know, you're not supposed to have favorites, but this seems to be his favorite. The way he writes to these people, the way he uh, talks to these people, deep affection for them. What else do you notice in this? Okay, God's faithfulness. Um, Love that. Verse 6 is one of my favorites we'll talk about here in just a bit. But God's faithfulness to them and this stuff. Okay, let me shift to uh, questions. Anything that pop up, and I, I, don't, I don't promise you that we're, we definitely won't answer them right this mo- minute. We'll wait till we get into the study. I don't promise you that we'll be able to answer all the questions that even do come up. But, but what questions kind of pop to mind as you read through those? Anything that seem odd or confusing? Lloyd? Yes, <laughs> to approve. What is it? He says, I want you to be able to approve 
the things that are superior. Um, and, and when you read through it, if you look through kind of the, uh, the way that word is used in the New Testament, it's used in a number of different ways to test something or to examine something or to, but to be able to kind of recognize something for what it is is kind of the idea. But that's good. That's, that's a good word there. What else? What's another thing that kind of popped up? Okay, from the first day, this idea of Paul starting, this is, this is what we saw. Is that the verse, uh, what verse is that? Five. Five, from the first day until now, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, yeah, from this idea, from the very beginning of you actually following Jesus, you were partnering, I like that. Uh, what else? Any questions, anything odd? Lloyd's pointing at Ryan again, I don't know if that's a thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're just blaming him. Okay. That's fun for me. <laughs> Got to your questions or anything. Um, and this may have been mentioned while we were chatting. <laughs> uh, I, I, I told my table, well, all, verse 9 always stops me cold in my class the way that he talks about love, which is uh, to grow in love. Yes. 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 And Lloyd actually, like, he thinks of he thinks of love in kind of that context. You know, like the love of a wife. You you grow you grow as you grow in knowing her. Yeah. Right. Your love grows. It's great. But I told him I don't actually hear love in my world discussed like that. Yeah. More emotive and affective, and it's less to know something or to serve. Yeah. Yeah, we don't often pair those ideas of knowledge and discernment with love, things together. That's, yeah, that's something when you see something like that, it's worth going, huh, why would, why would Paul say it like that? What is, what is Paul trying to get across there? Anything, anything kind of moving to that third thing, anything just kind of stick out to you? Anything you noticed uh, that was just kind of interesting? Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's so good. Yes. That's so good. I really I want to hit on that in a second because that's that's definitely an interesting idea. Anybody notice? Here's something that's kind of worth. Anybody notice the word "all" comes up seven times in there? It's actually eight times in the Greek. One of the words that's translated everything is actually also all. Um, so that's kind of an interesting idea. Why does Paul keep saying all over and over again in this? Why does he keep using this kind of all-inclusive language in that? Okay, let's, uh, let's jump in just a little bit here. Let's look at the first couple verses, and we'll talk through some of this stuff as we go. Uh, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Hope mentioned this. He starts by calling himself and Timothy a servant. They're servants of Christ Jesus. The word is, literally the Greek word is just slave. Slaves of Christ Jesus, he says. Now what's fascinating here is there are are two other letters where Paul will start uh, the letter by identifying himself as a servant. Romans and Titus. And yet, in both Romans and Titus, he follows it up by saying a servant of Christ Jesus and an apostle of Christ Jesus, which every time he throws out apostle, that's a way of kind of establishing his authority. I have the authority to say these things to you. I am commissioned directly by an apostle as someone who is commissioned and sent by Jesus on his behalf. This is the only book in all of Paul's writings where he starts by calling himself a servant and then does not follow it up with apostle. He just leaves it right at servant. That's interesting. Second, he tells, he calls them saints. And, and I don't know if you notice, both are based in their connection to Jesus. We are servants of Christ Jesus. You are saints in Christ Jesus. Um, and, and that's kind of fascinating too. Uh, when we talk about saint, we tend to, there's, there's kind of the traditional way that's specifically from like Roman Catholicism to talk about saints. Which is a, a saint is a remarkably spiritual person who's done great things, usually like two confirmed miracles and a number of other things that make them someone remarkable, someone who kind of has a special connection to God. That's what they, someone who's extra holy. When we in the Protestant church talk about saints, usually there are two qualifications that make you a saint in the Protestant church. Uh, first is you are really nice and second is you are really old, okay? Anytime somebody says, man, that lady, she's just a saint, usually that means she's really, really sweet. Maybe she prays a lot, and she's also pretty old. That's kind of the, that's the definition in our minds. Uh, Paul here says that he is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Um, when he says that, he is not saying, I'm writing to the spiritual people here. Uh, what makes a person a saint biblically? The answer is the blood of Jesus Christ, and that alone. Saint literally means holy one, to all the holy ones. And so if you are a Christian, biblically, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You are set apart by the blood of Christ, marked as holy. And it means a couple things. One is you are marked as holy, and second is because you are set apart, you are uh, expected to live as holy. This is kind of we're going to live out this identity as a saint. But he also says uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which is kind of uh, interesting uh, of the seven or the eight different saints, most, or sorry, of the eight different alls, I told you that word all comes up eight different times, five of them are all the saints, all of you. I am writing to all of you. I miss all of you. I love all of you. Now, Philippians, this church does not have a lot of problems in it. You don't see the major wrestlings with heresy. You don't see the strong uh, sexual immorality like you see in the Corinthian church or the walking away from what they first knew like in the Galatian church. There's not a lot of issues that the Philippian church has, but the one that they do seem to be battling is disunity in the church. 
And so it is probably significant that Paul is, from the beginning, keeps stressing all of you. I'm writing to all of you, not, not just the part that, you know, I'm with. I'm, I'm with these guys, but not with these guys. And I miss all of you. And I thank God for all of you. And he just keeps kind of lumping them together as one group that he cares about all together. I think it's also significant, though, the way he started it that we talked about a servant without throwing in the apostle because what Paul is going to say is one of the primary ways that you work against disunity is that each member of the church is called to lower themselves and look to the interests of others, to look to others as more important than themselves. And so I think it's probably significant that Paul starts by saying, this is what you need to know about me, slave, nothing else. And he starts with himself at the lowest point, basically setting the example of the way he wants them to talk about themselves and to think about themselves as they are interacting with one another. Um, So I think that that's not an accident. I think that that is important. Look at verse 3. It says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. A lot of always, every Uh, every time, a lot of that in there. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, One of the themes that you're going to see come up, this is kind of a, some people will mark this as perhaps the major or one of the major themes of Philippians is joy. Uh, Joy and gratitude. And you see this that Paul talks about how he's always praying with joy for all of them in every prayer. Now, what's really kind of an interesting study in the book of Philippians as you read through it is pay attention. When Paul talks about joy and rejoicing, what does he tie to joy and rejoicing? In other words, what things, according to Paul, ought to bring joy to us? What things bring joy to him? What things cause rejoicing in the Christian life? Those are worth kind of paying attention to. Uh, And in this text right here, in the verses we just read, what is it for Paul? What is the first thing Paul says causes him to pray with joy? Their partnership in the gospel. This is what he is excited about, their partnership in the gospel. What he means is that they are uh, specifically and first and foremost financially giving to the mission. They are supporting him financially to enable him to do this. If you go to 2 Corinthians, you'll see he actually writes about this church, the Philippian church, and how much he loves them because they are one of the poorest churches that he has. And yet as a very poor church, they have always been... um, eager, Paul says, to give. They, they want to give. Don't rob us of the chance to give to the mission of the gospel, Paul. And that kind of stuff is not just, Paul's not just going, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm glad you're doing it. It fills him with joy, not because he has more resources to do ministry as much as because he can see the fruit of God working in these people. And that fills him with joy. Um, a great strategy for personal happiness, by the way, if you want to be happy in life, is to take a cue from Paul and tie your joy to something that is bigger than your circumstances. Because most of us tie personal happiness to personal circumstances. And if we do that, then your joy, your happiness, is destined to rise and fall based on what's happening in your life. And you know that life can't go perfectly all the time. And so when it starts to go bad, so will your happiness, so will your joy. But if you can tie your joy to something that is outside of yourself and something that is bigger than yourself, 
you stand a chance of a greater level of happiness in your life, one that will be consistent. And Paul, by the way, has chosen uh, the gospel and the mission and the kingdom of Jesus Christ as the thing that he ties his joy to, which, by the way, is a great idea if you're looking for something because we know that those things will ultimately win out. If your joy is tied to the growing uh, level of the gospel, to seeing the kingdom come, then you can know that your joy is only going to increase over time because the kingdom will win out, even though it's going to have at moments times when the mission seems to be faltering, even though there will be times when it doesn't seem to be spreading like it should and, and there will be some sadness in it, but you know that eventually it will win out. Verse uh, 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I love verse 6, as I mentioned. He says, based on the fact that from the beginning you've been partnering me with me in the gospel, that's a sign to me that God is at work in your life. And I trust this, that God's going to continue working and he's going to continue to grow and mature you all the way to the end. I have confidence in that. He'll then go on to call them partners in grace, which, which essentially means basically the same thing. Uh, Paul will often use, usually when Paul's talking about grace, he's talking about the grace of God through Jesus Christ that saved us from our sins. Uh, but a lot of times Paul uses this same word grace to talk about the grace or the gift of ministry that was given to him. The fact that he doesn't deserve it, but he, he's been given this gift to work on Jesus' behalf. And, and that's what he seems to be referring to when he talks about their partnership in grace here. But he talks about this idea that he has a great affection for them. Um, let me find it. Verse 8, for God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, that same word, just kind of an interesting little side note, that same word is used in Acts 118, uh, the word for affection, and it is used to describe Judas who hanged himself in a field and then fall, fell down, and when he did, his body burst open and his intestines came out. The word for intestines there is the same word Paul is using for my affection for you. And that's because uh, in the first century, the, the guts, the bowels of a person was seen to be kind of the, the root of the deepest, most passionate feelings and emotions. In the Greek world, the Greco-Roman world, it was usually some of the more violent uh, passions and emotions came from the gut. In the Hebrew world, the most tender emotions often came from that. So what Paul is getting at here is from the depths of who I am to the core of who I am, I love you people. And it just like gushes out of him. It's cool to see this amount of, as, as Ryan mentioned, the mutual affection. And then Paul will finish his introduction off to them with this prayer that he prays for them. Here's what he says in verse 9. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, I love reading the prayers of Paul. Uh, I always love finding those. They're usually in the beginning of his letters, sometimes a, a little bit towards, towards the midway point, but I love reading his prayers for a couple different reasons. First is, they show me how to pray. 
I don't know if you've had the experience. If you're a Christian, you probably had the experience of going to pray sometimes and truthfully just not knowing what to say. And so you find yourself just kind of going through the same things over and over. Uh, God, just, you know, be with me today, whatever that means, as if God's not going to be with us um, unless we ask it. But God, be with me today as I go through this day um, and help me to whatever, whatever it is I'm doing, do good on my tests, to to do good at work today, whatever that may be. And, And it seems like we're praying kind of the same, almost mindless prayers again. I have totally been there. I don't know about you. But I have been there, and I have found a lot of uh, instruction and encouragement from looking at the prayers of Paul and going, I don't know what to pray, but I can pray these kinds of prayers for myself. I can pray these kinds of prayers for my friends and for my family. Or when someone asks me, what can I be praying for you? I don't know if you've ever been on the flip side and someone asks you, what can I pray for you? And again, you're like, I, I don't really even know. And a great answer is you can pray Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for me. You can pray the prayer found in Ephes- at the end of Ephesians 3 for me. You can pray the prayer found in Colossians 1 for me. Those kinds of prayers are some great things. So looking at Paul's prayers, and I'll just throw in the Psalms, are great ways to learn to pray. And, and they give you words. You can just pray those prayers straight up. The second thing I really like about Paul's prayers and, and, and watching him pray is because in those prayers, we get to see the connections that God makes or that Paul makes between requests and results. In other words, if, if there's a certain kind of life that Paul wants for people, if Paul wants people to be able to live a certain kind of way and have this kind of life, what kinds of things does Paul believe he should be praying for them in order for that to happen? What connections does Paul make? Um, this kind of godliness is only, only takes place when these things are happening in their life. This example of it here in Philippians, uh, Philippians 1. Here, what Paul wants for the Philippian church is that they would be the kinds of people who approve the things that are superior, that is, that they recognize and value the truth, that they value Christ and his kingdom over and above other things, and, who will, and that they'll be the kind of people who are pure and blameless, filled with a fruitful life that brings glory to God. That, by the way, is a great description of Christian maturity in a nutshell, a godly mature person is someone who loves the things that they ought to love and who is pure and blameless and filled with a fruitful life that brings glory to God. But Paul says, what is it that brings someone to this kind of life? What does Paul go? If I want you to be like this, this is what you need. And here's the answer. Paul says, because I want this, he prays that they would have a knowledgeable and and discerning love. A knowledgeable love that has a discernment with it. That's an interesting connection that Paul makes there between those things. Um, As we said, it is interesting to see those words paired together. They don't often pair together very well. We're going to touch on that in just a little bit. Uh, But first, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a summary of Philippians. I'm going to give you a summary of Philippians 1, 1 through 11, this section, kind of in a sentence. And then, uh, and then I'm going to give you a couple minutes to discuss a couple other things real quick. Um, here is, uh, if I had to put Philippians 1, this introduction, into a sentence, I would say it like this. Paul is filled with joy over the Philippian church because of their partnership in the gospel. And he prays that they will grow in discerning love so that they will be pure and, uh, that they will be pure and God will be glorified. Paul is filled with joy over the Philippian church because of their partnership in the gospel, and he prays that they will grow in discerning love so that they will be pure and that God will be glorified. 
Philippians 1, 1 through 11 in a sentence. Here's what I want us to do now in this responding to God's word. I want us to go and start to ask these questions. What does this text teach us? And I think we're going to do this each week, though we may have different topics or themes up there. A lot of these will be the same and overlap, but they may be slightly different. So you've got a few there. What does this text teach us about God? What does this text teach us about the gospel? What does this text teach us about the Christian life? What does this text teach us about the church? And what does this text teach us about God's and our mission? So I want you to read through those. I'm going to give you another, uh, I'm going to give you another four or five minutes there to discuss those at your table um, and, and kind of come with some answer to that. What are some things you see? What do we learn from this and how do we live from this? Talk about that and then we'll kind of wrap up with, with another five or ten minutes. Go. Okay, let me hear from you guys for a little bit. I'm just going to kind of jump into, we're not going to start up at the front. I want to kind of finish with this last question. What does this teach us about God? So let me jump randomly to, uh, what does this teach us about the church? What, what do we learn about the church as we read this text? What kind of stuff does it tell us? You may not have gotten there in your discussion groups yet. I probably didn't get you enough time to get down to those bottom ones. I should have told some of you to start at the end. It's my bad. Anybody want to, even without any discussion stuff, anything, anything kind of simple or easy you see in there about the church? We're saints, okay, that we are all saints. Okay, I started to hear somebody else. Okay, to be united together, this, uh, that, that unity is a theme in there and that there, there ought to be a unity in the church. Okay, good. Even in the very early life of the church, they're already organizing. Yes. In the sermon today, we'll talk about Acts 16. Deacons need to handle certain problems, but here it's the saints. Yes. Yes. So you, you see that Paul, wherever he starts to work, he sets up structures. So yeah. Yeah, it's not just the church isn't just a bunch of people who believe in Jesus, but there really is a structure to it. There are elders, there are deacons that make up leadership, that make up part of a church. And so that's, that's important there. Uh, what about, let's, let's go to, what does this teach us about the gospel? Anything we read and hear about the gospel just kind of sticks out to you. Okay, and we have a role in spreading it. Uh, Paul travels around everywhere. Most of these people from Philippi are never going to in their day-to-day kind of uh, jobs where they're just day laborers kind of making it and not with a lot of money. Most of these people are never going to do a lot of traveling and that kind of stuff, but they have a role. They have a partnership in the gospel by the way they pray for and give to the ministry there. I think that's big. Anything else? Okay, what does it teach us about the Christian life? What do we learn about the Christian life from this passage? Okay, that it shouldn't be stagnant. There should be growth taking place. Paul is talking about this and looking for it and saying, I'm encouraged to see it in you and I want to see it all the more and I'm praying for it all the more. I think we see that God is both the means of it and the end of it. So it's to his glory he talks about, but it's also God who is working in them. And he says the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. It's big. Lloyd, did you have something? Uh, If you love me, 
Yes, yes. Yes. Yes, there is an interaction as we are grouped together with these things. I think that that is so huge. I, uh, this end goal of purity and righteousness is achieved by a love that grows in knowledge. Um, and I think, just to kind of hit on that for a second, I think it's really easy today in today's world to swing one way or the other towards uh, discernment and knowledge or towards uh, love and passion, which I think is un- uh, unfortunate, that we can go towards a love that is mindless and unthinking, and we can go towards a judgmental criticism that lacks love or kindness or compassion in it. And especially in a year like 2020, there were all kinds of things to have opinions and thoughts and to be passionate and excited about. And did you know that it is absolutely possible for a number of Christians, I think, uh, I think it was possible to be right about a lot of social issues like Black Lives Matter or like masks or no masks or like whether the church should be uh, doing more social distancing or should be doing more online stuff or should be doing more masked stuff. Um, it was, It was possible that there were a number of Christians last year in 2020 who were completely right in their opinions on those things. And it's possible for Christians to be right even today about a number of doctrinal and theological things, predestination or or whatever, perseverance of the saints, those kinds of things. It is possible to be right about all those things and to be very unloving towards your brothers and sisters while you're right. And when that happens, all of our wisdom and all of our knowledge does nothing to help the church grow in purity and righteousness. And did you know that it's possible to feel a strong affection for people, a deep love for people, and then to let those feelings of affection keep us from speaking hard truths to them about their sin or about a lack of fruitfulness in their life? or about a failure for them to hold to the biblical standards of sexuality or self-control or greed. And when that happens, all of our love does nothing to help the church grow in purity and in righteousness. We do not honor God when we love people like this. And we do not honor God when we know all the right answers without any love with it. What Paul is praying for, and I think that this is really interesting, Paul is not praying that they will hold these two things in tension. You've got knowledge and discernment over here, and you've got love over here, and the idea is that we keep a hand on both of those, and even though they're hard, we kind of try to keep those together. I don't think that's the way Paul sees those two things. I think Paul would tell you that real, genuine, deep love is rooted in knowledge and discernment of the truth. The more I'm able to know the truths of the Scriptures and the truths of the Gospel and what God wants, it enables me to love people more. And I think he would tell you that real knowledge and real wisdom is working out in a humble, loving attitude towards other people. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of a foolish, it's a prideful knowledge that is not real and deep. They're not two things to be held in tension. They're two things that are meant to be um, melded together as one thing that feed each other in them. But lastly, I want to finish with what do we learn about God from this text? What are some things we learn about God in here? Yes. Paul, Paul clearly uh, believes in the long-term faithfulness of God. Because at two different points, he keeps talking about in the day of Christ Jesus, and, and that he will, he will bring you to, to like this 
holiness and his perfection, you know, it, as the kingdom finally comes to its yes. culmination. So Paul just keeps looking way into the future. Yes. He doesn't know how long that is, but he trusts that God is going to carry everything. Yeah. I told you guys, verse 6 is, is one that I just have, have received a lot of encouragement from. I'm just going to read it to you again. Uh, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, I think that there are probably two, two major kinds of doubt in the Christian life. Um, there is one kind of doubt that is doubting things about God. Like you, we may struggle sometimes with does God exist or is God loving or is, did the miracles really happen or those kinds of things. And, and some Christians really struggle with that. I think all of us probably, if we're honest, I, I've felt uh, moments of wondering sometimes. And so all of us have little moments of that. And then there's another kind of doubt that has almost more to do with ourselves. Uh, this kind of doubt like if the Holy Spirit is really working in me, then why do I keep living like this? Or can I really actually measure up to the kind of standards that this is holding out to me? Do I have the persistence in me to follow through with this all the way? I've, I've talked to my, my son who was baptized just a couple years ago, and he has already confessed to me as a 10-year-old, Dad, I'm concerned. What if, I, what if I don't keep following Jesus? What if when I grow up I don't want to do this anymore? And, and man, I, I know that. Like I said, I've wrestled with both kinds of doubt, but it's this second kind that has tripped me up the most in, in my Christian life. And so that's why I am grateful for things like verse 6. What verse 6 tells us is that if when you try to answer this question, am I going to stay the course? Uh, do I, am, I, am I living the right kind of life? Can I continue to live the right kind of life? If you try to answer that question by looking only at yourself, you are looking in the wrong direction. If I'm asking things like, do I have the resolve, or am I committed enough, or am I strong enough? Um, because the, the, the truth of the matter is, is I'm not the only one who has a say in this. Um, I, I do believe in free will. I do believe I get to freely choose whether or not I will follow and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And therefore I believe, and, and not everyone agrees with me, but therefore I believe that I have the ability to walk away from belief in Jesus if I so choose. But I do not believe, according to verse 6 and according to so many others, that all of this comes down to me. That all of this simply depends on me and my own cleverness and my own strength and my own ability to do those things. Um, what verse 6 teaches me, and I love this, is that the maker of the universe and the sustainer of life and the God who has breathed out stars that are millions of times larger than the planet Earth, that that person is committed to seeing me become more like Jesus. And he is throwing all the power that he used to breathe stars into existence. That kind of power stands behind me and my pursuit of growing up in Christ. It's not just me at work in that. It is the, the work of God. And Paul says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And I can rest in that. When I read other parts of Philippians go, man, I don't feel like I'm measuring up. I can rest in this truth that, that as... I am trying, and as I am working, that it is not just me trying, but that the God who made all things is also working in me and growing me to those. Take confidence in that. Take peace, and you want to look for something to tie your joy to, tie your joy to that this week. Uh, let me pray, and we'll be done. Dear God, thank you for this book. And I thank you for uh, the truth that you are 
working in us to make us like Jesus. And I pray, in prayer, Paul prayed, that we would be filled with a love that is knowledgeable and with all discernment so that we will be able to love each other well, speak to each other well, and grow up in Jesus. Lord, make us pure and blameless. Fill this church with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that you would be glorified in it. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right.